dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8?
Давай. Я могу говорить. Welcome to Women's Magazine here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today is Friday, December 14th, 2018. We are rolling towards the solstice happening next week um, and the the calendar uh, new year happening in just a few weeks. Um, So what a year it has been. Uh, it's, I'm really happy to be here today here at Mutiny Radio, as I am every Friday, because Mutiny Radio is such a cool place for artists to come uh, and for free speech to happen and for us to be able to join in some conversation, uh, spread ideas and inspiration. And um, I'm really excited today. Um, I've got a very inspiring guest, um, Halima. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes. And uh, so Halima Barucha. Yes. Am I saying that correctly? You are. Okay, good. Um, so uh, Halima is a Bay Area-based change maker who works with communities to help equip them with the tools for positive change and strives to create policy change to address discrimination. As a Bay Area regional director and lead strategist at Malika, she's working for gender justice. Uh, as the Telecommunications and Technology Fellow at the Greenlighting Institute, she's working to address digital redlining, which we'll get into a little bit. Um, she's a board member of the Muslim Democrats and Friends Club of Alameda County and also leads workshops to address Islamophobia and, um, and does bystander intervention training. Um, so, Halima, I'm really, I'm really pleased to have you here on Women's Magazine today. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I love your energy, and uh, we we met at the She the People conference, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of energy in that room that day uh, with women from around the country, 36 states, uh, trying to build community, uh, political power, and political community um, amongst women, and especially women of color, um, and uh Yes, but even in the midst of that excitement, um, your energy really stood out. So um, what brought you to She the People and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, I was so excited She the People. It was like in September that it happened, but I still feel and that that energy flowing through and I still remember the experience really vividly. Uh, The main thing that brought me into that space was being in a space where I could see all my heroes in one day. I mean, the whole day was like one after another after another, a phenomenal, phenomenal women identifying folks um, coming up to the stage and sharing their stories and journeys. So that was a huge thing. Um, I was like on a high the whole week after that. 
Um, and it was so incredible to hear from people that I've been looking up to for a long time to see representation as well, to hear from Rashida Talib um, and so many others, to hear from our elders like Dolores Huerta um, and to be in that space. And it really inspired me to keep going. Like every now and then I need that re-energizer to remind me that I need to keep going. And there are so many people who have built a foundation for me so that I can continue to build on that. And I'm not alone in this. And so the energy in that room was just wild. And I was actually really uh, lucky because I was able to um, get Nina Turner to come to visit Greenlining the next day. Um, and so she came through to our office for a bit and we got to chat with her a little bit more privately. And so that was also an incredible experience to just be with someone who has so much power and energy. Um, so yeah, the whole week was like, I was just on a high. I was like, this is amazing and incredible. And there's so many people who have been fighting for me and who are waiting for me to come and take over because they also need to rest now, right? Yeah. Um, so it was just incredible. I, I, I agree. It was um, such an amazing event to have all those women in the same space um, and to really be able to see the, the like the fruits of everyone's labor yeah. um, the panels of all the political strategists in the key states that were you know mobilizing people to register to vote um, yeah so a lot a lot is still you know coming from that I know Amy Allison just got who organized it she just got named by Politico as one of the top 19 people to watch in 2019 um, because it's it's a powerful movement so um, so the Greenlighting Institute tell us tell us about your work there yeah. So I just started working at the Greenlining Institute in August as a telecommunications and technology fellow. Um, and I didn't think I would end up in technology because my background is not in tech whatsoever. Um, my background is more in sociology and gender justice work and in Islamophobia. Um, and so I didn't think that this would be where I'd end up or that I would love it so much, but I do. Um, and the Greenlining Institute has a fellowship program, which I'm a part of. It's a year-long fellowship where um, you get development and leadership training as a youth of color uh, to become a leading person in whatever sector that you're looking to get involved in. And so at the Greenlining Institute, I work mainly on two things. I work on the tech equity um, project that we're doing. And in that, we have two issues that we're working on. One is digital redlining. Um, and it's it's like a big word, so I'm just gonna break it down really quick. Um, when you talk about redlining, that's one one of the big things that greenlining works on, and greenlining is the solution to redlining. When we talk about it, that's why it's called greenlining. Um, and so redlining is housing segregation when you're looking at the way that banks would literally draw a red line around certain communities and decide that we're not going to provide them with loans or mm -hmm. services. And so there was a lack of services in certain neighborhoods that usually, or for the most part, were low-income communities, were um, POC communities, people of color communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we talk about digital redlining, we're looking specifically at the way in which those same communities, wh which are redlined, are not getting internet service and not getting um, cables in their homes and things like that. So it's a very specific focus on home internet access. Um, and 20 to 30% of black and Latinx, commu Latinx communities have less home internet access than their white counterparts. And so when you think about what does that mean for you as a household, you as a person, to not have home internet access? It's a huge deal, especially when you're living in the Bay Area, especially when you're living in the 21st century, right. where everything is online. Um, and especially if you're a person of color. Um, for me, you know, if I don't know what went down in the news, my life could be in danger. I might be a target and I may not even know because I didn't have access to this key tool. Or when you think of the role of technology and in, in for people of color and like for even things like Mutiny Radio, being able to put out your voice and build your own platform and share your own story I think that's really important and when communities don't have access to that it's a huge piece um, it's almost like not having like your online voice is so important when you don't have that it's it's just cutting you off from so many opportunities and resources um, and so I'm working on increasing home internet access in communities of color specifically um, it's also referred to as a digital divide and so there's the urban rural digital divide um, there's a gender digital divide in terms of women and um, queer non-binary folks in terms of who has access to um, technology smartphones internet and things of that nature um, and when you look at the rates of men and women that's what the data is on men and women right now. Um, when you look at that data, there's still disparities, and you can see that by geography, by um, class, and all those pieces. So there's divides in all those areas, and I, I work to close those. And then the other thing I work on is algorithmic bias. 
Um, Break that one down for yeah. us, too. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start with what algorithms are. Algorithms <laughs> are, I guess you could think of them as formulas. Um, and we see them that come up in our software. They come up in the things that we use, like the apps that we use on our phone, um, the different technologies that we see on our computers. So when you're applying for a job, for example, and you see the online job application, that's a software. Um, and an algorithm is put together like a formula of like this plus this will equal this outcome. Um, and so when you look at algorithmic bias, I'm talking specifically about the ways that intersects with race and gender. Um, so I'll just use the example of resume reading software. And so when you're applying for a job online, um, you're putting, you're uploading your resume online, you're filling out those little boxes and stuff like that with your information. And then there's an algorithm, like a formula that's deciding which the, which, uh, the top applicants are going to be. Hmm. Um, okay. and it's maybe going to give like the top 10 to the employer if there's like a thousand applications, right? Because a person can't read them all. Um, and when you see the bias coming up, the algorithm has these formulas and the different pieces are plugged in. And some of the pieces that are plugged in, that's telling the algorithm, like we want the top applicants who are going to show these keywords in their resumes, who um, might have these names or whatever it is. They're giving them past, the algorithm is getting past data of hiring and stuff like that, hiring history. Um, and so Parts of where the bias can show up in algorithmic bias is in those data inputs that we're recreating um, historical bias by giving historically bias um, patterns of hiring, right? Because hiring itself, like even if a person was hiring, has shown bias, especially in certain industries. And so it's just being replicated because of the data that's being inputted. And so you see bias in hiring and with the algorithms. And it's interesting because algorithms are seen as objective. Like we assume that, oh, it's a code, like a person didn't do it. And so they're seen as more factual and we trust them more. Hmm. Um, but it's interesting because they also have bias and a human actually created that code, that formula that made this algorithm. Right, it's it's by design. Right. W whether or not the, 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 um, the person who is programming mm -hmm. it is actually even aware that themselves of their own bias that they were putting into this particular um, yeah. read. Exactly. So I work on algorithmic racial and gender bias. It shows up in many places. It's actually really scary when you start to look more and more into it. Um, at the Greenlining Institute, we're focused specifically on insurance and employment. And then later, we're hoping to look at housing and that's how that's impacted. Um, something as little as putting in your zip code and it's not the right zip code can get you denied from getting a credit score or like a, a loan. Um, when we look at health insurance, for example, um, there are certain algorithms where they're tracking what you're where your search history is and where your shopping history is online. And so if they see, like, if I was buying plus size clothing, they might think, oh, this person might be overweight. They might have more risk for health issues and we're going to raise their insurance. Um, and so it's really important for communities of color to be educated on this issue because we're giving away so much data about ourselves, about who we are. Even the hashtags and emojis we use can give away so much. Um, and a lot of these, you know, social media and like our browsing history and like, you know, even like Amazon search history and like what you're buying shows so much to these people. Um, and so we just need to be more aware and mindful of the ways in which this works. Wow, I, you're really you're really unpacking a lot for me right now because um, I mean I think that a lot of people are, and I could certainly well to speak for myself you know obviously all of our data is being you know tracked in one way or another but I, like you said I don't think a lot of people know exactly the ways in which it's being used I, I think if they did know that it, it would there would be a little bit more mindfulness about it but also just wanting to um, you know create a laws to help protect people and their and their digital privacy yeah. um, because like you said obviously if you know you're shopping for for something and then an insurance company is you know buying your information and using some of that information to make a determination of whether or not they're going to give you health care and at what price yeah um, it, it, these are real life uh, consequences of things that you know people are run, running around with smartphones in their hands right now all around us yeah algorithms can literally make you poor and I think that's the bottom line that we need to be aware of and think about ways that we can combat, ways that we can create tools. And I think when the people, like the community, has access to technology and is able to create their own solutions, I think that's the real um, way where I see things coming to a long-term uh, place. Um, one example that I could think of is Block, which is a software that was created by youth of color for other youth of color to um, optimize their resumes so that they would be able to go through resume reading software and pass that, like all the bias pieces that they look for 
more and be mm. able to pass that um, and get their resumes on the table and get jobs. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, it's not a long-term you know, solution, but it is a solution. Um, and so it's really cool to see communities of color and like different people coming together and creating some kind of, you know, whether it's temporary or long-term, but some kind of solutions that we can deal with it in the meantime, you know, as we work to address these issues. And even if you think about policy, I mean, a lot of our policymakers aren't even sure how Facebook works, right? And we saw that. Um, and so how are they gonna address algorithmic racial and gender bias? And is our policy going to be implemented fast enough to keep up with the changes that we see in technology? Because I think what's interesting, too, is when you think about time, technology moves so fast and it has its own timeline and policy has a way different timeline. And our communities have different timelines, too. So if we want to work with a community to create solutions, we have our own way of doing things. Um, and so just thinking about all those competing timelines and the concept of time, and this is also really interesting. So how has... Uh what has this work um, brought you to do recently, at least kind of uh, politically? Um, because uh, in, in terms of policy work, uh, what, what have you been involved with in that regard? Yeah. Um, well, when I first joined Greenlining, we had a big win with net neutrality. And so that was super exciting. Um, I was actually uh, able to speak at the press conference with Nancy Pelosi and some other leaders who are pushing for that bill. Um, that was a really big win. And then, of course, the FCC came back with a lawsuit. And so that's something that, you know, our, our team is always working on um, in terms of, you know, how do you push back and how do we maintain these protections? Um, in terms of other policy, we haven't pushed for anything at this moment Um to address algorithmic bias. Like I said, I don't know if government policy is the solution. And we've been thinking a lot about do we want to, you know, go to corporations directly? Do we want this to be in the community's hands? Like, how do we address this issue in a way that's sustainable and also centers the voices of those most impacted? And also, how do we um, raise awareness in the community? Because maybe people are impacted, but they don't even realize it um, because this happens so subtly. And it's also not seen as a bread and butter issue, right? When you're fighting for housing, when you're fighting for food on the table, you're not thinking about, oh, like, what is my smartphone doing and how is big data being gathered and how is this making me poor? Um, so just thinking about ways that we can reframe that. I've been working on a lot of the community side of this um, since I joined Greenlining on meeting with different community leaders, meeting with different folks who are doing work, you know, in similar areas or maybe not, and just talking about this issue. Um, and so we're going to be having convening in February where we do a town hall with folks in the community, both who are like in the nonprofit sector and the policy sector, um, and also just people in the community, just like the average citizen, um, to A, talk about this issue and then B, brainstorm solutions and see where the community wants us to go. So that way we can move forward as advocates. Most excellent. I, I, I love the bringing everybody together. Um, it's, it's so important. And it, I, your comment about time is, is really insightful. It's, it's certainly true. We see how slow policy can be, how slow government is to change, um, how long it takes to actually get legislation, um, even even to be on the table or to be proposed or sponsored. Um, but uh, I, I, I like the, the hopeful aspect of it, which is it may not be solved tomorrow, but if it, we're working on it, and it sounds like... Um, there's a lot of work being done. So yeah. that's, that's part of the reason why I'm really excited to have you here in Women's Magazine today. Yeah. Um, so as so we can kind of like, you know, kind of unpack and, and like stir this up and, and have people, you know, starting to tune in more of, um, you know, being more aware and, and trying to find more resources. So it's, it, it, on that note, um, where can people find resources where they can figure out where, you know, how the these algorithms are making you poor, yes. for example. Um, I would definitely recommend reading Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. She's one of the people that kind of blew this up as an issue. And she talks about, she has each chapter that talks about different areas. She talks about Facebook and democracy, um, how Facebook can actually swing states to vote a certain way based on the way they're targeting people to vote. Um, she talks about the resume reading bias, um, you know, in these, in these softwares. Um, so she has many chapters on each of these areas. I think it's a really great place to start. Um, and then the Greenlining Institute, 
we're working on publishing some like a two page really easy to understand like what's going on overview of the issue um and then I, on my social media on my instagram um i always post about like what's going on like my day-to-day and like kind of raising awareness on this but also asking people like hey what are things that you think i should address or you know what is coming up for you um i green lighting institute is actually really uh lucky because we got to meet with different people who actually have power to make change so recently i was able to meet with the CEO of T-Mobile to talk about their merger with Sprint um, and what kind of community agreements do we want if we are to support their merger. Um, And so being at those kind of tables means that I actually can ask questions and um, have a voice. And so I always post on my Instagram, on my story, like if folks have things that they want me to ask. um, And I usually report back on what those meetings were like, what I asked, what kind of answers I was able to get and asking people like, what do you think, you know, the next step should be just because I think there needs to be a lot more community person participation and because the community has answers more than I do sometimes Um, and it's really important to make sure that everyone's engaged in the process because we all have a role to play in this. I'm excited about this uh, your approach and because I I feel like we're we're actually seeing a shift in our country and and what you're explaining is a very you know like a democratic type of process where people can be involved there can be a dialogue whether or not you're there to to represent other people's questions but then also having that communication back and I feel like with um, a a younger generation to certainly your your generation um, coming coming into these positions of authority I mean you look at a, the 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 people that we're sending to, to Congress yeah. now we've got Alexandra Ocasio you know Cortez who is you know actively communicating with you know as many people as possible yeah. and 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 bringing that participation in that I think for a long time Americans have kind of lacked that connection with their elected representatives and I see that there are so many things from the 21st century that are going to need to be addressed, you know, sooner rather than later. And I think there's going to be a lot of um, just changes in the way that we do things uh, and, you know, in our communities, but also just across the country as well. Um, yeah. And I love the way that she's been using her Instagram. I, I'm always looking at them like, that's how we all need to be using it. Cause you're actually able to read such a big group of people and it's like coming from generation Z our attention span is like so short you have like eight seconds to get to someone and so when you have an Instagram poll where it's like here's one sentence what do you think it's a lot easier to kind of respond and like process Mm -hmm. compared to like oh you have to sit and read 10 minutes of like this New York Times article and break down like what all these words mean and then you actually can't even really respond to you just like got the news and like that was it so it's interesting to see some more interactive ways of getting the news and also being able to get involved and I really do think that if everyone, no matter like what their capacity was, was able to contribute even like 1%, it would definitely make a much bigger difference than if it was just like a couple of people doing the majority of the work. Mm. So tell me how you became so politically active. And um, I, won't, I won't disclose your age, but you are a, a, a rather young person. Um, when did you realize you were becoming politically active? Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. Um, so I was born and raised in California from the Bay Area. Um, love the Bay Area, by the way. <laughs> um, I was homeschooled until I was in middle school. And um, I'm a first generation. And my mom homeschooled me specifically because she is very anti-assimilationist. And mm. she did not want me to kind of assimilate into mainstream culture, to take on a new language, to take on a different clothing like a different culture um, and she really wanted to preserve my heritage and my religious um, upbringing mm-hmm. and so she homeschooled me and she would hand pick out like what textbooks I would read from and what curriculum I would use and things like that um, and I also didn't have access to like media or the news or anything so for a really long time I until so I was like 10, 11 years old, I actually didn't know what 9-11 was. Like, I saw pictures of it and I saw the impacts in my community. Like, I remember um, our Friday sermons would be recorded and um, people in our community were deported. The FBI would 
come and interrogate people in my community. We had informants at our mosque, like undercover informants. Oh, yeah. Um, so I remember all those things. I remember my mom getting cussed out all the time when we went outside, people calling her terrorists. And I had no context. Like, I didn't understand why that was wow. happening. So you had to kind of piece it together for yourself. Yeah. Where, where's your family originally from? My mom is originally from India and my dad is from Pakistan and Burma. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and they both came here when they were around college, college mm-hmm. age. Um, but yeah, so I had that experience of like experience experiencing these microaggressions and aggressions um, and witnessing these impacts in my community, but I didn't really have language for it or a framework or a real understanding of what was going on. Mm -hmm. I just knew these experiences and I had internalized so much of it. I remember for a long time I was ashamed of I can't like I have an accent when I when I spoke English I would have like an Indian accent and I was ashamed of that for a long time uh, and I remember when I first started going to school I was like in middle school I begged my mom I was like I need to wear American clothes like I don't want to wear Indian clothes anymore and so and that was what she didn't want she wanted me to stay and like have my roots but I was like I need to assimilate so I can be cool like everyone else <laughs> yeah I'm 12 mom <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I remember that was like a big tension between like in our family of like me wanting to be like everyone else else and like be like all the other kids um and she was very unapologetic about that um and my mom also really rooted me in compassion and so that was something that no matter how mean people were to her no matter how upset I would get about the way that she was treated she was always telling me and reminding me that you still respond with kindness Mm. um and I think over and over that's always reiterated in all the spaces that I'm in like elders reminding us that we need to respond with compassion Um, and that's the way that our communities win is with love Um, even recently thinking about the the faith leaders that were at the border um, for the action they were on their knees singing songs of love Mm. right and you have these militarized soldiers with all these weapons standing there and these people on their knees praying and singing songs of love and so I think that was really powerful growing up that I had that messaging and those reminders that really grounded me I didn't always appreciate it when I was younger sure um, but I for sure remember that whenever I'm in tough situations and so as I got older I when I was in high school I I was able to piece more things together, learn, got some more language around what is Islamophobia, what is racism, Mm -hmm. sexism, like all these isms that were impacting my life, but I didn't have language for it. I learned all those pieces. And then when I went to college, I went to Seattle University, I studied sociology. And I think that's where most of my understanding really flourished because I was able to piece together so many parts of my life, so many experiences that I had with a more deeper understanding of how power structures work. Um, And over there, I founded the Gender Justice Center which is a student-led organization that serves queer, trans, and female-identifying students. Um, And it's still there, like, running as a center. And it was really awesome because we were able to provide direct services and programming. So we started a community care pantry that was inspired by the Black Panther Party and by the Islamic teaching to uh, take care of your neighbors. Like, you're not supposed to go to sleep until you know that everyone in a 40-house radius of you is okay in Islam. And so it was inspired by that. And we provided free food and hygiene items for anyone to take, no questions asked like people could take whatever they needed um and after doing this work for almost two years because in college for two years um the university actually put money into it and we're still able to remain autonomous as a student-led organization and so that was one of my most proudest moments as someone who was um organizing and being more politically engaged and how do we create these spaces um and that's where i also was you know, reminded of the importance of having spaces that are biased for us. I think, you know, even being in the mission district Mm. and seeing, you know, how powerful the murals are here, the walls can, are literally sharing stories and histories and speaking to you as you walk. Um, And it's just such a different, um, different energy that comes from being in spaces that are by the people who are actually in that community. Um, and it's so powerful more than anything else that I've ever seen. And I think those are spaces where I've always felt grounded. And those are spaces that always remind me of what's important and like which direction I need to be going in. Well, I, you seem to be going in a, an amazing direction um, with all of your with all of your insight and all of the work that you're doing and um, your awareness of of, of uh, the compassion in your work. Um, I can I can certainly feel that. Um, you do a lot of work for uh, to to try to fight against Islamophobia. You're you're part of uh, an organization called Malika. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about your work there. Yeah. 
So the work that I do on Islamophobia is actually something that I started when I was in college. And it was after the elections where a lot of people were coming up to me and asking, like, how can we support your community? How can we help? Um, and this was a topic that I, I've always known about. I've experienced it in my life. I've seen it in my community. Um, but I didn't think about it more deeply on the structural level. So I was like, let me put together some kind of workshop where, you know, people can get some resources in terms of how can they help? How can they support and get it directly from the source? Because there's lots of sources online about Islam that are completely false. I mean, mostly the top results on Google are horrible. Um, even the images are horrible. Um, and so we were able to put together a workshop where we talked a lot about, you know, what is Islam? What, is, what are the myths and stereotypes? Some of the basic stuff. And then we did bystander intervention training. Um, and then from there, I got really engaged in learning more about the Islamophobia industry, which is a $205 million um, industry that profits from Islamophobia. There's uh, 74 Islamophobic organizations. Many of them are nonprofits or philanthropic organizations, and they get funding from different people. People, um, there's different laws. So even if you think about things like zoning laws and the, the way that they've been used to ban masjids, um, Muslim-free businesses, there's just like so many pieces of that industry that I found out about. And so I was thinking about, you know, how do we engage in this? And like, A, how do we raise awareness? Because when I say Islamophobia industry, that's a completely new term. And when I say divest from that industry, people are like, whoa, I didn't know that was a thing. Right. Like, what is it and how do I do that? Right. Yeah. So I started doing, I just recently actually developed a workshop on that in engaging people who are doing policy work and engaging people who are in different industries to think about how Islamophobia can actually impact all those spaces. Right now, I'm actually working on a report on the intersections of algorithmic bias and Islamophobia. Um, and we've seen that specifically in like the, the fintech or the financial tech field where we're seeing PayPal and Venmo uh, charges being denied or um, accounts being frozen because the comment had a word like Muhammad in it or like a Muslim word that was flagged as like suspicious. So there's lots of intersections and that was something that I was working on. Um, I worked that, I did that work with the Muslim Student Association Association at Seattle University. Um, and then I've continued to do that work on my own. So I offer these workshops to different community organizations, to different nonprofits, and people in all different areas that are doing this work and don't really understand those connections. Um, even being like a, lots of social justice organizations that have a really intersectional analysis, but they're missing the Islamophobia piece. Mm. And I see that a lot. And so I just started doing that work like on my own, um, like as a side hustle. <laughs> um, yeah. So can you give us like an, an example of what you mean by the Islamophobia industry? Like mm -hmm. something a little more concrete, you don't have to name names, but if you can kind of explain uh, something, something that would kind of uh, illustrate that. Yeah. So when we look at Islamophobia, there's lots of pieces to it. There is a political piece where you have political action committees or PACs, um, and you have different people that are funding lawmakers and legislators, like Ted Cruz, for example, has got a lot of funding from Islamophobic organizations and donors. Um, and so there's a lot of money involved. So I think the money piece is like one of the biggest pieces of the industry. The money is coming from nonprofits and philanthropic organizations and individual donors. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a list of those. There's a really cool website called Islamophobia.org, I believe. Um, and they actually have a really intricate map on how this network operates. Um, they, act, they name out the different funders. There's eight funders that are like at the top top list and they've given around $57 million to the industry um, and then the nonprofits together from their um, IRS, tax, IRS tax returns have put in $205 million and that was from uh, a 2013 report that the Council on American Islamic Relations did. So that was a while ago. So I'm assuming that number has gone up by a lot. Um, so there's just different elements of the industry. You're seeing in the private sector with Muslim free businesses. You're seeing in the uh, nonprofit sector with these nonprofit organizations. You're seeing it in legislation and policy. And I think the Muslim ban mm -hmm. is one of the clearest examples and most relevant and recent examples that we can uh, share. So there's lots of those pieces that are coming in together to form an industry that upholds and promotes hatred of Muslims and people who appear as Muslims or people who who are mistaken as Muslims. Um, and this also impacts, you know, just beyond just the Muslim community. The Sikh community, for example, has been right. deeply impacted, right? Um, the first person who was killed after 9-11 was a, a Sikh, Sikh man, man. right? Mm -hmm. 
And then you also think about the roots of Islamophobia and its connections with other forms of oppression. Islamophobia is rooted in anti-blackness. So when we talk about Black Lives Matter, this is super relevant. Um, The first Muslims to come to the United States were not even come. They were forcefully brought here as West African slaves. Um, They practice Islam on plantations. And there's a really rich history of that. Um, And I think Thomas Jefferson had a copy of the Quran. And there is a whole book on that where you can learn more about that. Um, So Muslims have been in this country from from when it was colonized Mm -hmm. um they've been on turtle island from when it was colonized and i think it's really important for us to think about the ways in which all these forms of oppression are connected and that's why i go back to like all these social justice spaces that are intersectional are missing this analysis and it's so connected to anti-blackness it's so connected to black lives matter it's so connected to xenophobia and racism even um gender justice when you think about islamophobic gender violence um there have been many recorded cases of gender-based violence that was motivated by Islamophobia, Um, when you think about even Muslim women who are survivors of sexual violence and the way that that's played out, um, there's this assumption that it was about the clothes, right? And Muslim women are, you know, the ones that wear hijab or abaya are tend to be covered. um, And people just assume that would not happen to you because you were covered. And it's not about the clothes, right? Right. Muslim women are proving this is really not about the clothes. This is about power and control. So there's also those intersections. Um, And at Malika, which is a global grassroots nonprofit that builds safety and power for all women, we teach self-defense classes and we host healing spaces where we can talk about this because there's so much to unpack. Yeah, I, when whenever people are, are shocked by some sort of um, you know offense that an, a woman has experienced, I, you, know, you just kind of have to stop and shake your head for a second and say, yeah, well, I'm glad that you think that that wouldn't happen, but it does. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the so so Malika that is that here in the Bay Area, and then um, how can people tap into that resource? Yeah. So Malika has um, chapters all over the U.S. Our first chapter was started in Queens, New York. Um, And so we have a chapter there. We have one in Dallas, one in Boston, one in the DMV area in D.C., um, and then the Bay Area chapter, which was just started um, about a year ago. So this is the second year of the chapter being here. Um, We do self-defense, financial literacy, leadership development, and have healing spaces for women identifying folks. Um, And those are the four areas of work that we've been really focused on is like how do we build safety and capacity and power for women identifying folks so that they can do what they need to to feel safe to be empowered um and so we've been doing that work for a while and we can you can find that if you look up uh, malika.org m-a-l-i-k-a-h um we're also on instagram facebook and twitter at we are malika um so we host a bunch of different events we're always down to collaborate and that's one of the ways that malika operates is that we always do things in collaboration with other folks in the community it's never like we want to do this and we think this is best but it's more so what are folks looking for and how can we provide you know some kind of support um our value add is definitely definitely being um an organization that's more skills and training based and we're able to offer these kind of like trainings like especially with self-defense and financial literacy that i think are just super important pieces um this sunday we're actually hosting a lifting and healing space Mm. so it's going to be a space where for women identifying folks who want to get into like weightlifting, but haven't necessarily like found spaces where like you feel good about doing it. Like when you go to mainstream gyms, it's like actually super uncomfortable. It's like, it's like all these men. And like, if you don't know what you're doing, it's just like really awkward. So <laughs> agreed. Yeah. That's why I like to ride my bike on the beach. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're trying to create spaces where we can build some safety and comfort and actually like practice these tools. Um, and then we were just going to have like a healing space where we can just talk about, you know, all these pieces like the trauma of like going to mainstream gym sometimes whenever I've gotten in my experience I've been hit on asked out like or men coming up and like what are you doing here little girl you can't lift weights um and I'm like well I've been lifting weights for like four years now like (laughs) so just like being in those like those really horrible experiences like unpacking that and like building spaces where we can talk about you know even the whole idea of like lifting and like going to the gym and like this really toxic like diet culture and like health healthy lifestyle culture which isn't always realistic mm-hmm. or accessible or affordable right um so we, we're just having a space for that and like every now and then we'll do you know healing spaces around different topics um and then we also do self-defense classes in the bay area very cool is that usually in the east bay or it's in, kind of all over it's all over yeah so we the, just it's it's not necessarily like a a single center yeah that people can yeah we don't have a, a physical space in the okay, bay area great. we just go to wherever people in the community are like we need you to come here and we're like 
cool. We're there. <laughs> that's very cool. I, I, th- that's probably a very smart model. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. I've been able to go, you know, do classes in like Sunnyvale and then have classes here in San Francisco and Oakland and different spaces. And it's always cool to see people at the end of class reflect on, oh, I actually didn't know that I could leave this situation of violence and I didn't know that my body could do this. Um, and so it's really awesome and inspiring for me to see that and for people to walk away with, I have these tools in my toolbox to protect myself. Absolutely. Well, Halima, you're doing such amazing work. Um, I'm really inspired by you. And I'm sure that everyone who's listening to Women's Magazine right now is going, yeah, right on. And just getting really excited about um, the energy that you're bringing to all that you do and the intersectionality that you are uh, acutely aware of, um, which I think that that even that word uh, intersectionality is something that is still kind of rolling around on people's tongues and, and like they're trying to find a voice for that. Um, but to see how all of these different forms of discrimination or oppression are can't, can't there's a commonality there and and we're all connected and so um, looking out for one community also means looking out for another mm-hmm. um, and I liked what you said about the um, the, the radius of 40 houses um, you know you can't sleep at night until you make sure that everyone within that radius uh, you know is, is fed and is safe and yeah. is sound um, so that that's a really inspiring um, part that I, I feel like you're, you bring or to your work um, so what do you think uh, we do just have a couple more minutes here um, do you what do you think about where, where are you taking this? Where, where, what's your, what are your next steps? I mean, you're involved in so much right now. And um, do you see for yourself a political future? I mean, we just saw 117 women across the country win their elections, um, several firsts for women of color. We have, um, you know, Muslim women who are going to Congress for the first time. Yeah. Uh, it's really amazing. Um, what do you think about your own political future? That's something I think about all the time. Um, I just turned 20, so I have a long time to think about it. She Um, just turned 20. Have you been listening? (laughs) I didn't. uh, Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, I am interested in running for office, um, but I'm not really tied to a specific role. Um, I am very much tied to a vision. And I think you alluded to that a little bit in terms of, you know, our liberation is bound together and we need to protect each other and defend each other no matter what. Um, And I want to be in a position where I can have influence to make tangible change for all our communities. And whether that's in politics or community organizing or doing policy work, um, I'm not really tied to a role. I'm just tied to that vision. Um, And I'm also really focused on ending gender-based violence. I think if you were to ask me, like, what's my one mission? That is my mission. Mm. I am so sick and tired of walking outside and not feeling safe, um, of being harassed like almost every single day, being followed by men, being catcalled, um, even by men of color. And that's just so, so frustrating. And that's part of why I work with Malika. That's part of why I have a gender equity analysis when we're talking about technology. Um, and when we talk about even Islamophobia and gender, uh, gender-based violence in that specific space, as well. Um, And so it doesn't matter, you know, what role I'm in. I just want to be in a place where I have tangible power um, to make these structural changes that are so necessary. Uh, And not just like reform changes, but transformative changes that are going to change the way our structures work. And I'm really excited with the women that have recently been elected um, to see the way that they're going to change things up because we have long been overdue for that change. Absolutely. And I really appreciate what you said about, um, you know, staying with the vision and and not, you know, worrying too much about what that specific title or role is. And that's something that also came out of She the People. Um, Amy Allison was during her speech. um, She encouraged everyone to, you know, obviously she was encouraging everybody to run for office. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, she said, you know, don't think about when you're thinking about running for office, don't think about who you want to be. Think about what you want to do. Yeah. And I think that that is a very radically transformative uh, way to look at electoral politics because we see the ego that has accompanied electoral politics from, from the beginning and continues to do so. Um, but I, I think that with this new generation, I think with more women, I think with um, more women of color and just like these integrated communities, I, I feel like that transformation is possible. And I and 
it, it just, I think it's still going to benefit everybody if we, if we had people who are deciding to, to run, you know, to, to hold on to that vision. So, yeah. uh, Halima Barucha, thank you so much for being my guest on Women's Magazine today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You're welcome anytime. And of course, you know, any of your um, associates and, and, and all of these amazing groups that you're a part of, if they ever need a, a community media resource, let me know right here, mutinyradio.fm. We're in the Mission District of San Francisco, and uh, we can we can help amplify uh, those voices and those messages. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to have you here as our guest and a, a new member of our collective, so to speak. Thank you so much. I love it. <laughs> and so um, just real last, uh, last thing, is there any way that you would uh, direct people if they want to maybe follow your Instagram page or if they or if, uh, reach out for you for your workshops? Um, is there some sort of uh, contact that would be appropriate? Yes, absolutely. So I'm on Instagram at Halima Barucha. It's just my full name, H-A-L-E-E-M-A-B-H-A-R-O-O-C-H-A. And then I also have a WordPress, which is linked to my Instagram. But if you're not on Instagram, you can just look up my full name, um, .wordpress.com. And that's where you can find information on booking for a workshop or self-defense classes or bystander intervention training. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to see what happens next and I, and to get involved in what some of your, some of what you're involved in. Um, everyone, you've been listening to Women's Magazine here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. And remember, just when your aspirations seem outrageous, hey, inspiration is contagious. So peace. Thank you. And uh, stay tuned. Lay your head